Hello and welcome to Emergency on Planet Earth with me, Mary Cray. Now, we Brits love our fashion. We buy more clothes than any other country in Europe, twice what the stylish Italians buy. And the UK fashion industry is a great British success story. It's worth £32 billion a year to the UK economy. But does our love of clothes carry a hidden cost for people and the planet? In this episode, I've been finding out about the social and environmental impacts of fashion as part of the Environmental Audit Committee's inquiry into fast fashion. First up was Dr. Mark Sumner from the University of Leeds, who explained what impact our demand for fashion has on the environment. I am with Dr. Mark Sumner, who's a lecturer in sustainability, retail and fashion near me in the University of Leeds. Always good to talk to an honorary Yorkshireman, a bit like myself, honorary Yorkshire woman. <laughs> Mark, we live in the heavy woolen area, a place with a great tradition of textiles. Just tell us a little bit about the environmental impact of fashion. So the, the, it's, it's broad scale. So what we've got is an industry that is global. It's an industry that covers things including agriculture, so we're growing cotton producing wool. It includes the chemical industry for dyes and, and, um, uh, and chemicals used on fabrics. It includes um, the, the use of non-renewables, carbon footprint associated with polyesters, nylons. I mean, it, it is very, very broad. And of course, laid on top of that, we've got the, the sort of social aspect, the cultural aspect of, of fashion and how important it is um, to be fashionable. Um, that has become a really important part of uh, modern society now. So it covers not just the science and the technology, but also the, the sort of softer sciences as well. Tell us a little bit about the impact. We've, heard, we've had a lot of concern about microplastics, particularly the shedding of fleeces in the wash and those microplastics appearing in, in pretty much every organism, including ourselves. You say perhaps we're focusing on the wrong issue with microplastics. Why do you say that? We need to be careful about what emphasis we, we put onto these problems. So microplastics is a problem. It's a problem in the sense that actually we don't really fully understand the mechanisms for release. We don't really understand the, the quantity that's being released and where it's going to. So we need to do that work and we are doing some of that work at the University in Leeds. But we also need to bear in mind, actually, this isn't the only problem that the industry is facing. The, the scale of that problem may be dwarfed by things like climate change. If we were to stop all the plastics going into the ocean now, we would still have major risk to um, the um, ocean biology um, because of climate change. Climate change is going to change the ocean biology across the planet. Um, so by focusing just on microplastics uh, or maybe taking our foot off the gas for other problems, I think we, we, we could have some unintended consequences there. So it's about trying to work out um, with the resources we've got how we can manage all of these different things at the same time. And if we're really clever, actually what we can do is reduce some of the climate change activities, which may also help us reduce some of the microplastic activities. That's the real sort of um, win-win that we need to be finding. So fashion is a global industry with a large environmental footprint from water use to chemical pollution. Textiles produce more emissions than international flights and shipping put together. I sat down with Alan Wheeler, director of the Textile Recycling Association, to get a sense of the scale of the challenge here in the UK and to ask what we can do with the mountains of clothing we throw away. Alan, give us a size of the clothing industry in the UK. How much waste does it generate each year? 
You can assume it's roughly around 1 million, 1.1 million tonnes of clothing every year, of which about 650,000 is actually collected for reuse and recycling. And we're good at that. We so sell we, it online, we give it to the charity shops. We do. The charity shops is probably the biggest route for collections. I think the Charity Retail Association estimate that around 360,000 tonnes a year goes via that route of which about half of that is sold in the charity shop and the other half then goes out to textile collectors such as the members of the Textile Recycling Association and then you've got other routes like textile banks. But then there's the issue of what happens to the stuff that gets into residual house bins each year. What should we be doing with that stuff that we're chucking in the bin? Essentially, we should be looking at whether it needs to go in the bin in the first place or not. In other words, can, uh, can it be reused or recycled? Recycled how? Turned into shoddy? We, I know what yeah. shoddy is, coming yeah. from uh, Wakefield. Indeed, but now to, I know. explain <laughs> to my listeners. Well, shoddy is made up of wool waste and it's a, it's a yarn that has been created from wool waste and it's used as a, a wool yarn substitute. It is generally perceived to be of slightly inferior quality Hence, it is shoddy, and that is where the commonly used English word shoddy comes from. But of course, it's extremely useful. I mean, we talk about fibre to fibre recycling, yeah. trying to get it into new clothes, but your members are turning this shoddy into useful items that can last a very long time. Well, Carpets, so, yeah. mattresses, and... Blankets is, is another common thing. So a lot of uh, blankets that are used for aid work um, and relief work are, are made from shoddy. So that's... a really important um, application. Other, other ways of recycling include um, cutting wiping cloths, so if you've got a worn out t-shirt that can be easily cut into an industrial wiping cloth. Uh, loft insulation? Loft insulation, impact insulation, so in the interior uh, of motor vehicles that, that's often uh, made from recycled fibres, uh, mattress and duvet fillings, there's a number of different applications. So that's, wh that's where your, your socks moment, and pants yeah. are used at the moment? They can be, yes. Although the problem is socks and pants and all the recycling grades have a really low value and therefore it's really important that we, we try to stimulate new markets for recycled fibres because if we're going to collect more clothing and more textiles we need to make sure that we have roots. Um, Demand at the end. Yes, we, we need to. And, and at the moment, it doesn't pay for the clothing or textile collector to pick that up and reprocess it. So they're only making the money on the good quality reusable clothing. So if you've got a mixed grade with good quality clothing and lower value recycling, then they can make it pay. And that's one of the market issues that we're facing at the so moment. So perhaps we need to be looking at um, mandating, as we have said with plastic bottles, recycle content into yeah. uh, new fabrics. That would certainly be a driver in terms of stimulating the markets. So yeah, I think that's one of many aspects that I think we could be looking at. It's not just the environmental impacts of fashion that are of concern. Labour abuses remain in the supply chain in some of the most common materials in our clothes. Here's Kate who told us the dark story behind the cotton industry. 
I'm here with Kate El Sayed Ali, who's International Advocacy Manager at Anti-Slavery International. Now, you've got great concerns, Kate, about the slavery associated with the cotton supply chain. Tell us what's happening there when we're buying cotton. That's right. So, um, Turkmenistan is a major producer and exporter of cotton, but in that country, the cotton sector is underpinned by systematic forced labour. The perpetrator of forced labour is the government itself. There are cotton quotas given by the central government to local governments, to the regions, and then handed down to public institutions in the country of what um, the amount of cotton that they need to pick each annual cotton harvest. And this is state-sponsored kind of slavery? Absolutely, state-sponsored forced labour where, you know, not only is the state culpable, but it's also the state that financially benefits. This cotton is ending up in Turkey, is it not? Around 80% of cotton from Turkmenistan ends up in Turkey. And Turkey is the second largest apparel sector for, for cotton that eventually makes its way into Europe. So there's a pretty high chance that um, any business sourcing from Turkey needs to really look at you know, where that cotton has come from. And it's not just the social impact of cotton in countries like Turkmenistan. There's also been a huge environmental impact in another uh, former Soviet Central Asia state, Uzbekistan. Tell us what's happened to the Aral Sea in Uzbekistan. The preoccupation with the cotton industry in Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan, but also countries like Azerbaijan, has led to water being diverted to cotton. So we've seen a crisis in the Aral Sea Basin area, loss of water, loss of fertile land, saline land. So land becoming salty and unsuitable yeah, for any crops. That's right. I mean, increasingly, you know, there is a, a loss of land that will be suitable for production for wheat, for cotton. So yeah, we have an environmental crisis and we have a, a slavery crisis too. We heard disturbing evidence of labour abuses here in the UK. Sarah O'Connor, correspondent of the Financial Times, told me about her investigation, Dark Factories, Labour Exploitation in Britain's Garment Industry. When we think about exploitation, we think about it happening overseas in Bangladesh, in China, in India. You found it happening right on our doorstep here in Leicester. What did you tell me about what you found? So what I found really is that within the Leicester garment industry, there's just a, a huge chunk of it that is, uh, as one factory owner described it, a country within a country where UK labour law basically just doesn't exist. And the going rate for a garment factory worker is maybe £4 an hour. Bear in mind the UK minimum wage is £7.85 an hour. If you're really, really good, if you've got loads of experience, you might get £5 an hour. And what's amazing that is that this entire um, kind of practice of labour exploitation is just happening in plain sight. So it's an open secret. Central government knows about it. Local government knows about it. All of the retailers know about it. And yet it sort of continues to happen. These are women that are working for British brands, and you name some of the brands. Which brands are they? Well, we can't say for sure where exactly the garments end up because it's a kind of complex web of supply chains. But certainly... You, when you have a kind of a large number of people 
who are making clothes that end up on the high street and on the online brands. Not paid minimum wage. What, what is HMRC doing about this? So HMRC obviously has responsibility for enforcing the national minimum wage. So in the last five years, up to 2016-17, they identified 232,000 people across the economy that were underpaid, so paid less than the minimum wage. But of those, only 83 were textile workers. So I think that tells you that HMRC haven't really been looking very closely at this sector, even though it is a kind of open secret. And I think that's partly because it's really difficult to get inside these factories. One of the things about them is they're absolutely tiny. They're often, I've been inside some, they're like six people with sewing machines and an ironing board. Um, and so it is quite difficult for them to penetrate this sort of web of tiny factories. Um, but I would argue they could try harder. So you were talking about David Metcalf, who's the Director of Labour Market Enforcement, says there's been a culture of impunity here. What does the government need to do to tackle it? So I would argue probably two things. One is, I mean, they just need to enforce the law. It sounds simple, but it's not being done. And it's not really being done on other issues like tax, as you mentioned, uh, health and safety. Uh, and so, yeah, we just need to spend more resources on sending inspectors in to sort it out. And then the other thing, I think, is that we need to think about the dynamics within the retail industry that's making this happen. Because... Often these factory owners say that they have no choice but to make clothes very cheaply, which means paying workers very little, because the retailers are demanding such cheap prices from them. So I think we probably need to tweak the law so that retailers have an actual legal shared responsibility for what happens further down their supply chain. These supply chain issues, whether it's the issues around growing cotton to the factories and finally to the shops we buy our clothes from, are really complicated and difficult. So how can we as consumers pick out responsible retailers from the shady shops? I asked Sarah Ditty, Head of Policy at Fashion Revolution, to talk about their Fashion Transparency Index, which shines a light on fashion retailers and provides customers with greater transparency about who made their clothes. I started by asking how her organisation, Fashion Revolution, came about. Sarah, tell us why Fashion Revolution was set up. Fashion Revolution was founded as a direct response to the Rana Plaza factory collapse in Bangladesh on the 24th of April 2013, where over 1,130 garment workers lost their lives, mainly women. And many of the brands whose garments were being produced in those factories didn't know that their products were being made there. And relief workers literally had to dig through the rubble trying to find clothing labels to prove that those brands were indeed producing those factories and we just thought, you know what, this isn't good enough. How are c consumers supposed to make educated, ethical shopping choices when brands themselves don't even know where their products are being made? So we set on a journey to campaign for much greater transparency in the fashion supply chain. Okay, you've published your transparency index pretty much every year since then over the last five years. What listeners want to know is, who are the good brands? Who's performing well and doing the right things in this environment? I think that's a really tricky question to answer. I don't think there is a sort of black and white answer to say, oh, this is who's good and this is who's bad. I think there are some brands who are doing more than others who are really trying to get to grips with the like social... Who? and environmental impacts across their supply chains. So in the Fashion Transparency Index, some of the higher scoring brands in there are CNA, Marks & Spencers, H&M, Adidas, Puma, ASOS. 
Who are the low performers? Well, a lot of the luxury brands actually tend to be lower in the fashion transparency index just because they're not really disclosing very much about their practices um, when it comes to social and environmental issues. Also, I think a lot of the new newer online retailers, obviously not ASOS, are some of the brands we're seeing really not disclosing anything about what their practices are and you know, how they manage to have such cheap products but still manage to respect environmental protection and human rights. So price is no guarantee for the consumer that the person who made their clothes has received a decent wage. You, you talked about fast luxury. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's not to say that luxury brands aren't doing awesome things behind the scenes. Some some of the luxury brands are working in some really interesting ateliers. They've got some really interesting programs on supporting artisans and things like that. It's not to say that they're not doing anything, but I think there is a misconception around price and that if you pay more, that automatically means it's a sustainable product. That's just not the case, especially when it comes to human rights issues. Sometimes a fast fashion brand and a luxury brand might be working in the same factory. And whether it's a 50-pound t-shirt or an 8-pound t-shirt, the worker who's making that cotton t-shirt still gets paid very low wages wherever in the world that factory is placed, but particularly in factories in developing countries. So since 2015, the British government has brought in the Modern Slavery Act. How do you think that has transformed what companies are doing in their supply chains, or has it worked? Yeah, I think the most positive thing that the Modern Slavery Act has done has, because uh, CEOs are required to sign the Modern Slavery Statement that brands and retailers are producing, it actually means they have to look at the statement and read it and be aware that there are these risks in their businesses. But it's one of those things, it's like, once you see it, you can't unsee it. So once you know that those risks are there, then you really need to then look deeper and be sure that you're managing those risks and you're not going to make yourself liable to incidents of forced labor. So I think that's the most positive thing about the about the act. Where it's missing out is, you know, there's no there's no sanctions, for example. So if you're not compliant, if you don't produce a statement, or if you're found to be having incidences of forced labor in your supply chain, there's no you know, there's no sanction. So the the act certainly needs some more teeth. Well, that's under review at the moment now with our colleagues, and I'm sure the results of our fast fashion inquiry will feed into the review of that act. Sarah, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. There you have it. We overconsume, overpurchase, and underuse our clothes. Driving an industry that is bad for the planet and bad for the people producing our clothes. Our committee's report, Fixing Fashion, has now been launched and we're setting out in that the steps that we believe we need to take to move towards a net zero emissions fashion industry, tackling the chemicals, the energy, the water usage, and the social issues in the fashion supply chain. If you want to do your bit, buy less, use it more, wash cool and hang it out to dry. Don't put it in your tumble dryer. You can find the link to our report in the description below and you can also check out the responsible retailers and those who literally couldn't be bothered to reply to us. Yes, I'm talking about you, Kurt Geiger Shoes. That's all for this episode, but tune in next time when we'll be talking about planetary health. What is it? What does it mean? And why does it matter? I'm Mary Cray and you've been listening to Emergency on Planet Earth. 
Emergency on Planet Earth was presented by Mary Cray and produced by Sam Airy. The music was Cold Funk by Kevin MacLeod, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks to our guests this week, Dr. Mark Sumner, Alan Wheeler, Kate El-Syed Ali, Sarah O'Connor and Sarah Ditty.